Have you ever felt invisible? You find yourself in a big crowd, maybe like this morning, if we look around, and there's people and there's faces and conversations are happening all around you and you're standing right there in the middle of it, but you can feel surprisingly alone. What a weird experience that is. Because in one sense, you could not be less alone. There's literally people all around you. But no one there really sees you, and no one actually knows you. You know, being invisible is kind of a funny thing, because for some of us, that word carries some sad and and some heavy uh, ideas for us. It's the idea of being overlooked, or feeling unimportant, or underappreciated. But I'm willing to bet that there's a good number of us in this room who actually see it in a different way. A number of us who actually prefer the invisibility because we're able to pass by, to stay hidden, to be invisible. We may be surrounded by a whole crowd of people, but there's actually a comfortable anonymity that happens when we're surrounded by a bunch of strangers. I want to be honest, sometimes I feel like an impressively antisocial person. Anybody else in here ever feel that way about themselves? Good. You can tell just how antisocial people are feeling by how free they were with their hands. Some of you guys, all I saw was a nice little one of these. There was a couple of this. So participation trophies, it's going great. Um, You know, I think we can all relate to this because we've all found ourselves in a situation where you're at a Walmart or you're at a Target right? And you, and you got your list and you're kind of going through your items and you're, you're chuck, chucking it off. And then out of the corner of you eye, your eye, you look over and you see somebody that you know on the other side of the store, right? And there's this moment of panic that happens. And, and I'm not even saying we don't like the person. Maybe they're our friend. Maybe there's something we really value. But you see them and you feel the panic because you're like, I don't got time for this. Like, I don't have this right now. I don't have the social capital. I'm not ready to just invest in this. So you have to make a decision in that moment. You feel the fear and you feel the panic and then you dive into the next aisle, right? And you start to strategize and come up with all these ideas trying to think to yourself, okay, so how do I weasel my way through the store that I never see them again and also don't run into anybody else? This is something we can relate to. It's something we've all done And don't get me wrong, I can mingle with the best of them when it's time to be an extrovert and like just go for it. All right, it's game time. But I can only use that energy for so long before I've burned it up. And then all I want to do is go home, throw on some sweatpants, watch some Netflix, maybe have like a bucket of chicken. And it sounds like a pretty ideal Friday night to me. And this is actually kind of impressively American of us. We love our individualism. We love our our independence. We love, if we're honest, our isolation. We want to come home after a long day at work. We want to lock the door and just shut off. Many of us prefer to live our lives online. So we spend our time binging on Hulu or YouTube. We're scrolling through endless posts on social media, pretending we're engaging socially while doing the least social thing that we could possibly pull off. And we surround ourselves with more entertainment options than most people could dream of. There's something in us that loves to fly under the radar, to keep our relationships light and breezy, instead of taking a risk on the deep stuff. And that brings us to this new series we're starting called Incognito. The definition of this word is having one's true identity concealed. 
where we only let people see us so much, exactly as far as we want them to know, but we, we keep our true selves hidden because it's comfortable, because it's safe, because it's easy. But I'm hoping we're gonna see that this can be dangerous and it can also leave us in a place of missing out because it actually goes against our core design. You and I were made for community. We were made to be a part of this interconnected family of believers who live their life together and love one another. And I'm gonna make a bold claim here. I actually think this is so important to God that it's the driving force behind creation. Have you ever asked yourself, why did God create? Why did he make the universe? Why are there angels? Why are there us? What's the motive behind it? And we find this answer, I believe, in the theology of the Trinity. This phrase that's kind of heady and kind of hard for us to understand. This idea that we worship the triune God, the three in one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that there is no hierarchy in the Trinity, but they are all at once equally God. And the beautiful thing that we need to see in the Trinity is that for all of eternity, eternity past, you can't go back far enough in your imagination, God has never been alone. Like, think about this for a second. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have for all of eternity known and existed in a community of love. A great um, author named Timothy Keller uh, explains this. He calls it the divine dance. This idea of the Trinity where at all times they're circling one another. And, and it's a self-giving love where they are focused on the other one and they are uh, showing appreciation and honor and respect and giving glory to each other in this unique relationship. And what I think is beautiful here is God did not create you and I or angels or anything else because he was lonely or because he reached a state of boredom. Actually, our God was for all time completely satisfied in that relationship, satisfied in himself. So he didn't create out of a lack. Instead, he created out of a desire to share that experience, the uniqueness, the closeness, the love that has always existed in that relationship, to share it with the beings that he would create. All of creation comes from the overflow of the community that the Trinity has always known. And then, if that wasn't enough, when it came to creating us, to creating humanity, God gave us an incredible honor that we find here in Genesis chapter one. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Don't miss the plural here. This is important. This is the Godhead speaking inside that relationship. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our Likeness. And then he gave them a role and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God did something really incredible with you and I, where he created humans in the very image of God. 
And this is an interesting thing to think about. What does that mean? I don't believe that God looks like us, like our physical bodies are just a reflection of his. Uh, the Bible actually tells us that God is spirit, so he's something, something else. But what I think is being said here is that you and I are not just flesh and blood. Thank God <laughs> that we are more than just these physical bodies, but that God in making us in his likeness, in his image, has put something in us that is eternal. This spirit, this soul inside of us that cries out for the eternal, that cries out for a relationship that is capable of knowing him and communing with him and longing for this being that is so much greater and beyond us. That's what I think it means that we were created in his image. There's something powerful that he did in making us. And this should show us something very important when it comes to this idea of being in community with other people. That every single human that you have ever met or passed on the street or tried to avoid at Target was created and designed in the image of God. Every single person is an image bearer of the king. This should teach us how we should see the people around us, how we should care about the people around us, and how we should be willing to engage and open up because there's something about that person that is wonderfully unique and wonderfully creative. I love this concept. If you look at like psychology, they'll tell you that most of us have this idea that our own inner worlds are incredibly complex. We know how complex we are and we can create all these dramas and all these interconnected relationships as a part of our lives and we can make it as if the whole world revolves around us. But then what we tend to do with the people around us is we assume that they're incredibly simple people, right? We are the complex ones. We are the ones that are rich and, 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 and all this stuff. But what I'm saying here is that every person you meet is as wonderfully complex as you are and wonderfully unique made in the very image of God, someone that he loves, that he fashioned, that he came to save in the same way that God loves you so much that he came to set you free from your sin and your shame is the same way he loves every single person you've ever met and desires for them to be in relationship with himself. What I'm saying is God has built inherent value in every single person. And this should impact us. Now we see God's plan at work in Adam and Eve, in the very first humans, because they were created in this place of perfect innocence. Uh, they were able to know each other completely. Actually, their relationship was goals. They, they were living out the perfect marriage until like the next chapter. We'll get to that in just a moment. But before that, nobody has ever known their partner as completely as Adam and Eve. Each of us today, as much as we love our spouse or the, or, and, we, and the, our loved ones, there's still things that kind of keep us apart. There's insecurities, there's fractured issues. But Adam and Eve were able to look upon each other and be fully known and to have this relationship of trust that was so complete. It's, it's a beautiful picture. But more than that, they got to be and walk and spend time with their creator, Adam and Eve knew this unique closeness to God himself that we can kind of only dream of. Now, now there's a very real reality that God is all around us and his presence is here with us in this place and he's never far away. That's all very true. But as Christians, we know that we're not home yet. 
that someday we're gonna be face to face with Jesus in heaven and that relationship will be completely restored and we dream of that hope being fulfilled. But Adam and Eve lived it. They experienced it. The Bible tells us that they walked with him in the garden, that they were able to speak to him. There was no separation. This is how it was always meant to be God's plan for humanity to have this incredible closeness to him and each other. But it all got screwed up when sin entered the picture. We find this in Genesis chapter three. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. At this point in the story, God has created this incredible garden and he's created the first two humans and he's told them, I have given you everything that is here. And I want you to delight in it. Just enjoy it. This is my gift to you. You can have everything you see except this one tree. Don't eat from this one tree. If you do, you will die. He didn't lie to them. He didn't try to trick them. He didn't hide it from them. Just don't do this. But everything else is yours. But then this serpent comes in. Satan comes in and he starts whispering these lies. And he's like, I don't think God actually meant that. I don't think he actually meant that you would die. No, actually, I think what he was trying to do is he knows if you ate that fruit, you would become like God. You'd be able to know the truth, the difference between good and evil. You'd be just like him. He doesn't want that for you, so you shouldn't do it. And Eve got caught up in it. And she looks at that fruit and she sees the temptation of it and she eats. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. That's important. Adam's there, okay? He's not far away. He's hanging out with Eve. She eats first. She gives it to him. He's right there. That'll be important in a second. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I just wanna point out what a massive change of behavior this is. From the moment of their first breath, all Adam and Eve had known was this perfect relationship with each other and this perfect closeness with God. There's a beautiful song by Phil Wickham called Eden, and in this song, there's a lyric that he writes that says, innocence was all I knew because all I had to know was you. Their whole being was wrapped up in that closeness with God. But then the moment that sin enters the picture, that purity, that perfect innocence was stolen from them. And their first instinct is to run and to hide. All of a sudden, they're aware of their nakedness and they feel shame, they feel dirty and something's wrong, and so they cover themselves up. And this is so sad to me. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Just imagine every time before this moment that they heard that sound, this would have been a moment of pure joy, like pure awe and wonder, like he's here and getting to go be with him and to talk with him and to have their hearts satisfied in a way that you and I only dream of. That's what that sound always elicited in their hearts until this time. When sin and brokenness is there, all of a sudden, the sound of God that should bring a position of joy and love and wonder brings fear and terror, and they, the reaction is to hide away. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God says, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. God's not dumb. He knew exactly what had happened. He's completely aware of what happened, but he asked them so they will open up, so they'll be honest, so they'll confess to what just took place. And he asks Adam this question, and Adam does something so dumb, and it's so dumb because it is so like what you and I do. In the last chapter, the dude is writing poetry about this woman. She is beautiful beyond belief. She is a gift from God. I'm so, I can't believe I've been given this incredible partner. And then all of a sudden, sin comes into the world and he throws her under the bus. <laughs> Who gave you the fruit? Why did this happen? Oh, that woman, the woman that you gave me, God. Remember her? Yeah, yeah, she tricked me. He makes her into a scapegoat. And then God turns to her, turns to the woman. He says, well, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She does the same thing. Adam throws her into the bus, shifts the blame onto her, and she shifts the blame onto the serpent. Because this is what you and I do. When we feel shame and brokenness and distrust, we lie about it and we hide our brokenness. It's very, very human You see, we were designed for deeply connected relationships. That was the intention of our king. And that inherent desire that God built into us, it was damaged here. It was damaged at the fall. That's where distrust was born. And we've been hiding ever since. Every generation of humanity still continuing to hide, still continuing to hold people off, still feeling like we can't trust one another fully, that we shouldn't allow ourselves to be vulnerable because then we're coming to a point of risk. So the question I have for you and for myself today, how do you hide? How do you hide? We all do. And the ways we hide can take different forms at different times. Maybe for you, hiding looks like isolation where you physically remove yourself from other people and you just stay home and you're cool with them doing their thing and there's this separation and, and we all do that at times. But it can look and take other forms. Maybe for you, hiding means that you like to put on this unassuming and quiet persona. You just keep everything pleasant and you're almost hoping that people are gonna get disinterested. Maybe they'll get bored and then they won't wanna dig any deeper. Maybe for you, hiding happens through achieving. Right, Because if all you're doing is, is winning, it just looks like success. That's not avoiding people, that's just impressive. And after all, you're so busy. So as people make all these plans, you're, just, you're constantly succeeding, you're constantly winning, you're constantly achieving, but in reality, you're keeping people as far away as you can. Maybe for you, hiding becomes aggressive. It becomes that harsh exterior, you're pushing people away, you don't want any of that. And maybe... Hiding is where you actually mirror other people. It's where you show them what they want to see. And someone could get tricked into thinking they actually know you, like they've spent enough time with you, but they're just seeing this mask that you've put on. They're seeing exactly what you think they want to see, but they don't know the true self. They don't know who you really are because you've kept that away from them. This is how we kind of live in every sphere of our life, but how sad is it when we allow ourselves to do these same things inside of the church. 
in this body of believers where we're supposed to feel safe to engage and to connect, where we're supposed to look different from the world around us because after all, we know Jesus and he's changed us from the inside out and he's changed other people in this room from the inside out. Yet, even here, we can feel like we can't really let people in, like we still need to hold them off at arm's length. Jesus came to teach us that there is a better way. His mission to earth was to repair and restore this broken world. And most of the time when we think of Jesus' mission, we focus on his sacrifice, and and rightfully so. We focus on the fact that he paid for our sins, that he satisfied the wrath of a holy and righteous God, that he brought grace and forgiveness that we could never earn. And we should absolutely focus on those things. They are very important to the gospel. But if we take a close look at his whole life and his ministry and we read all of the Gospels, we start to see that from the very beginning, Jesus was working to restore the community and the fellowship that he had always intended us to have, the kind of fellowship that should mark the believers of God. We see this in how nobody was beneath Jesus. Over and over and over again, story after story, Jesus spent time with, had dinner with, loved, cared for prostitutes and tax collectors, sinners, those that were sick, those that were despised, lepers, people that the world had marginalized and written off. Yet, All throughout the Gospels, those were the people Jesus spent his time with. You see, he was trying to teach us a very important lesson that love does not show partiality. Because if we're being real, we tend to want to spend our time with people that are attractive to us, right? We want to actually invest in relationships with people that are comfortable, that are easy for us to like. But if someone is awkward or if somebody is different, then we kind of come up with this list and these reasons why, oh, I don't need that relationship. That's, that's fine. And we push it off to the side. But that's not our king. That's not the example he left. No, Love does not pick and choose. It does not give higher honor to some while degrading others. But no, it is inclusive and it invites in and it shows and sees value, that inherent value because each of these people was made in the image of God. Jesus saw that. The only people that he was harsh with, that he was standoffish to, were the religious elites. It was the Pharisees. But to those who had been marginalized by the world, he could not have been more inclusive We also see this when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? So here's this wise teacher, and and, and he gets asked this question. If you were to give me like the main thing of all of scripture, what's the main thing? Here's Jesus' answer. He quotes the Shema, which was this beautiful prayer that we taught on last year. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The guy just asked him for one thing. He said, so that's the first, but the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is really big. Let's go past Sunday school experience with this thing that's kind of familiar to us and let's realize what Jesus is doing here. 
What is the most important thing? If you were to sum up all of the scriptures, everything that was ever written in the Bible, everything that the prophets taught, if you were to sum it up, Jesus is saying that you should love the Lord your God with everything you have, but then he takes and he elevates this other relationship. And he says, yes, you should love God with everything you have, and this one's just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was trying to teach this really fundamental thing that we get wrong all the time, which is to love God is to love people. And to really love people is to love God. These two things are not mutually exclusive. That we're actually tricking ourselves and fooling ourselves if we think, yeah, I'm, I'm close with God. I've got this vibrant relationship. I worship him so well. But if there's no evidence of how you are loving and caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone every other person in this world who is made in the image of God, who is worthy of our time and our love and our affection, we're missing the mark. To love God is to love people. And then Jesus kind of wraps all this up in a beautiful prayer that we find in John chapter 17. Um, This is called the high priestly prayer, and this is right before Jesus was about to be captured and executed. He says this incredible prayer to his father, praying on the behalf of his people. And I want you to see the language that he uses here because he's about to wrap up everything we've talked about, Jesus' entire mission to earth. And he's gonna use language that ties all of this in to the Trinity, where we started this whole thing, to this community that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have known for all time. The language here is beautiful, it's poetic, and I want you to just focus in on what we're about to see. He's asking that they, this is you and I, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is crazy what he's saying. He's saying, the people that you've given to me, those that would believe in me and follow me, Christians, brothers and sisters, that they would be so unified, that they would be connected, that they would be one, just as you, Father God, are in me, Jesus. In the same way that the two of them are are in and connected and unified to each other, that we also may be in us. Again, the language here, it's Jesus. It's beautiful. There's a connectedness here that he's talking about, and he continues, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Glory given to Jesus from the Father. He has given to his people that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and he caps it all off here, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Please don't miss this final sentence. People all around us, and I'm sure many of us in this room, we can very easily get the wrong picture of who God is and how he relates to us. Sometimes we can imagine God as this kid with a magnifying glass looking down upon ants, as if that's God's relationship to us. As if, as if we're nothing to him, as if we are far off to him, as if we are like a fun little Lego project that he built one day. 
That's not how God sees you. That's not how scripture talks about that relationship. If that's how we imagine this far off God, we are missing it because Jesus is saying something so intimate and powerful here. After asking that we would be unified just like the Father and the Son are unified, he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. Do you realize that it's saying here that God the Father loves you in the same way that he loves Jesus? It's crazy. And this is one of those truths that should penetrate our hearts. And those of us who have put our faith in him, this should start to change the way that we relate to our God. He's not just this benevolent king who looks down upon us and is like, okay, I paid for your sins, we're good now. But instead, he is that father who loves you so much, who after saving you, adopts you as his sons and daughters, calls you his own, and invites you into that same community and relationship that the Trinity has known for all of eternity. There should be sounds of shock and awe in the room right now. I'm going to believe it's happening very quietly. This is why studying scripture is so important. We get these ideas about God and then we look at the word of God and we realize, oh no, his love for me is bigger than I realized. His love for me is more vast than I pictured. It is taller, it is deeper, it is longer, it is wider. I haven't imagined fully how incredibly powerful this God is and now he has invited me in to this very same relationship and connection. All of creation stems from God's desire to be deeply connected to his people and for you and I to be deeply connected to one another. So all of this has been heading here. The whole point of this series is that we need a call to real fellowship. To real fellowship. I don't know if you've realized this, but Jacob's Well is a large church. Yeah. And something probably a lot of us have experienced But it is totally possible to slip in, attend a service, slip out, and if you don't want to, you do not have to have a real conversation with anybody. It's true. I have people ask me all the time, should I go to a big church, should I go to a little church, is one better than the other? And I'm going to be honest, sometimes I prefer it that way where I could slip in and slip out. Like I work here and I spend a lot of time here and I know a bunch of faces and, and, and some of your stories But sometimes it's just nice to scroll in, scroll out, grab my coffee, go to my office, whatever, and not have to have a whole lot of conversations. You know why? Because it's comfortable, because it's easy, because it doesn't risk engaging. But what I hope you hear from this whole message is if that is all that we expect or all that we want out of our time at church, we are missing out on something holy and beautiful and something that our Father has always intended. Jacob's well is meant to be more than just a place that we attend. And it's meant to be more than an organization that we belong to. Instead, this is meant to be a living, breathing, vibrant part of the body of Christ, full of brothers and sisters who love each other and are pushing each other on to love Jesus more. And please hear this. That is really happening here both inside of our walls and in meetings and conversations that happen outside of this building. There are thousands of stories of how the love of God is moving throughout this body, different individuals meeting and praying for each other and caring for each other. It's beautiful, and I don't have time to tell all of these stories. But what I hope that you hear 
is it is possible to just come in, attend, and leave. And I want to challenge you. There's so much more than that. And if you want to experience all that the body of Christ is meant to be, then you have to take the risk and you have to get plugged in. I have found my deepest connections, the, the, the best relationships with people, I found them here on the teams that I get to serve with. I actually think this is one of the best ways to engage here. It is a big church, and you may not, you know, just coming in and, and you get to meet the people in your row, you might not see them again for a number of weeks. But when you start to serve one, one, with one another, you get to talk to them, you get to really know these people, and you start to care about, about each other. Um, for the last three years, I had the privilege of working in the student ministry, and in that ministry, I got to know my youth leaders, and these people are absolutely incredible humans. And I would spend a lot of time with them. We would go to summer camps, where we were together 24-7 for a whole week in the trenches doing really hard ministry work together, praying for each other and building each other up. And what starts to happen is these strangers become friends who become brothers and sisters. They become family. They become the kind of people who encourage you and challenge you in your faith. I don't have time to list every person who's made an impact on me, but some of the names, Jen Reese, Garrett Hulke, Stacey Poli, Gary Opelt, Morgan Barnhart, Matt Reese, these people who have been there for me and I've been there for them, it's beautiful what happens. And now in the worship ministry where I get to serve, some of these relationships are starting to grow and to change and, uh, and it's awesome. Some of these people I've known for a while, Josh House, Tamara Fanjoy, John Eistad, Jenna Booth, people who care about me and I care about them and we get to share this love and this passion about coming up on this stage together and trying to be as real and transparent as we possibly can and trying to remember that all the glory and all the worship is due to him. And there's a bond that happens in those places. What I'm saying is you sign up to serve because you're thinking that this is gonna be a good way to bless the church, to bless God and that is true and beautiful but one of the awesome things that comes with it is relationships and real connections with other people. One of the ones I wanted to take just a moment and highlight is a man, uh, his name's Jess Pedigo, and some of us in this room know him and love him. He's an incredible man of God who just breathes worship. And anybody who knows him, this worship team, this ministry, it's his family. He loves them. I remember when I first came to this church, he was so excited to welcome me in and bring me in and help me to belong to something. And some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about because he did it with you. And he's so happy and so free to share his testimony. And right now, he's in a hospital and has been for a couple months going through some extreme stuff. And I would just encourage you as his family, as the body of Christ, let's lift him up in prayer and be caring about our brother. But I want to let you know that for the last couple months, I've had the privilege of watching my team come alongside him, be praying for him constantly, unified, going and visiting, spending time with them. It's, it's beautiful to watch the people of God being the living, breathing body of Christ. What I'm saying here is these are the people that make Jacob's Well more than a place that I attend and more than an organization I belong to. These people show me the real, raw connections that the body of Christ is all about. Because church is not a place that we attend. And it's not the bricks and the two-by-fours that make up this building. We are the church. Men and women, brothers and sisters, united by our common love for Jesus and a commitment to love one another. So for our next steps... 
The first one is this. I think this is one of the best things you can do at a church this size. Get plugged in through serving or join a small group. The deepest relationships I have found have been in my serve teams. I really encourage you to do that. There's amazing ministries here. I've already mentioned the student ministry and the worship ministry. Our children's ministry is on fire. There's so many good things. Look into it. Next, there's two opportunities coming up. One, there's this No Regrets Men's Conference on February 1st and Women's Connect on February 2nd. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, I really could use some brothers and sisters in Christ who love me enough to call me out when I'm struggling with sin, who love me enough to push me in my faith towards Jesus, who when I need people to support me, they're there for me, and I can be that blessing for them. This can be an awesome opportunity for you to get to know other men and women and and also just to be rallied and excited and to go forward in this year uh, with all that God has planned for us. And then finally, I just want to challenge all of us. This is an individual thing. Open up your heart and invite other people into your life. We were made to be connected, to be unified, to experience deep relationships. Let's not just be satisfied with keeping people this far off. Let's let people in. Let's be real. And let's see that kind of real community that Jesus fought for and lived for and died for and created and built into us. Now, the very last thing I want to say is this. This message is not an extrovert versus introvert kind of a thing, okay? All of us in this room kind of find ourselves on different side of this. I don't believe, introverts, that you should get to know every single person in this room or that you should try to have super close relationships with 500 people. That's probably not a good idea. And extroverts, please don't try it because it's all going to be like super, super shallow. So the whole point of this is not let's get to know every single person who attends this church. The point of this is you and I should engage in honest, real, life-to-life connections. And I think we'll see that when we do that, this place becomes so much more. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. And you've done so much for us, God, everything. Lord, I just pray right now that this thing we're talking about of community, that we would go beyond the elementary teachings of this, that we wouldn't see this as something simple, something that we've heard over and over again, like, yeah, we should be nice to each other. But God, I pray that this would go deeper and we would realize that this is one of those simple truths that is so hard for us to actually act out. God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to be real and to be honest, to take risks to engage with other people. God, I thank you for the truth of the Trinity, for that relationship that you have always been a part of and how you've invited us to know that relationship you've invited us in. I pray that that concept would penetrate people's hearts, change us, change our perspective of you and change our perspective of the people around us. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.